Hi, I'm your host, Lillian Yang, and you are listening to Food Nonfiction. Thackeray isn't here right now, but you'll still hear her voice at the end of the episode because we Skyped. All right, let's get started. J-E-L-L-O The Jell-O Program, starring Jack Benny, with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Kenny Baker, and yours truly, Don Wilson. The orchestra opens the program with No Wonder. This episode tells the story of Jell-O, a cheap and easy-to-make gelatin-based dessert product. There were other competitors that came before Jell-O that had basically the same product of powdered gelatin in a package with flavoring added to it. But Jell-O made gelatin desserts popular at a time when gelatin desserts were unfamiliar to the masses. Right into the mid-1800s, gelatin desserts were only eaten by the elite wealthy families who had huge kitchens and cooks who could spend the time to laboriously boil down animal parts to get gelatin. So gelatin desserts were new to many people, and it took a lot of powerful advertising to make gelatin dishes a well-known dessert. Jell-O accomplished this advertising feat where others failed. In the town of Leroy, where the Jell-O brand was first conceived, there is a museum. It's called the Jell-O Gallery Museum where you can see some of the original advertising art. When the Jell-O factory in Leroy was closed in 1964, 19 original oil paintings were donated to the Historical Society, which opened the Jell-O Gallery Museum in 1997 to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the introduction of Jell-O in 1897. So, to tell the story, we called up Lynn Belluccio the director of the Leroy Historical Society, and the curator for the Jell-O Museum. Um, my name is Lynn Belluccio. I'm the director of the Leroy Historical Society. As we mentioned, the Jell-O story really begins in 1897. And the reason is that in 1897, a man by the name of Pearl Bixby Waite, a young man, he was in his 20s, was looking for some things to manufacture. He had some patent medicines and some cough drops and things that he was manufacturing. And uh, he was also a carpenter. He was building houses. And um, so, and we really don't know why. Um, he decided he would package powdered gelatin, sugar, flavoring, and coloring. And it was his wife, May, that came up with the idea of naming it J-E-L-L. And it has to have the hyphen, hyphen O. Pearl and May did not patent their Jell-O recipe because there were other flavored gelatins on the market, like Trifosa and Knox gelatin. But they trademarked the name Jell-O. And for two years, Pearl Waite tried to market Jell-O. Pearl was not successful at marketing Jell-O, so he ended up selling the right to use the name Jell-O. He sold the rights to order Frank Woodward, who was the owner of the Genesee Pure Food Company. For $450, Woodward got the right to use the name Jell-O and all the surplus boxes of Jell-O that Pearl Waite had left. This was in 1899. We don't really know exactly what, what his idea was. He owned a couple other food products. He owned a coffee substitute called Grano, and he owned a, a cereal called It. Um, and you could have it for breakfast. So I think he just looked at Jell-O as being something else in the food line. 
Although Orator Woodward was a successful businessman, he too had a hard time marketing Jello. People didn't know what it was.、Um, you had to first explain to them that all you had to do was add two cups of water to this powder, and you were going to have,、um, you know, a jelly, which they were called. And、um, You know, it was、um, something new, something different. People weren't so sure they wanted it. And、uh, the story is that he tried to sell it to his plant manager for thirty-four dollars, and Sam Nico said, "No, I'm not interested in either." So I think at some point he decided that the what he was going to have to do was to really pull out all stops for advertising. And so he entered into advertising in a big way. First, buying black and white ads for the Ladies Home Journal, a couple other early magazines. And then he had salesmen out driving horse-drawn wagons, and all over the East Coast, for the most part,、uh, we have a wonderful account of one of the salesmen that was out in Xenia, Ohio. Order Woodward's traveling salesmen would go into towns with a wagon full of recipe books, and then give out the recipe books for free to everyone in town. Then they would go to the storekeepers and say. Look, we just gave out 500 recipe books to the folks in town, so they will be coming to the grocery store, and they're going to want to buy this new product called Jello. We will be happy to supply your store shelves with this new product. So, I think that 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 was very good because people got the free recipe book.、Um, they saw what they could do with it. It was new. It was colorful.、Um, it was relatively inexpensive. And、um, so people started becoming acquainted with it. Now this is the same time that other products are suggesting that you buy、um, their products by the brand name. And、um, so you've got, you know, Gold Medal Flour, Pillsbury Flour. You've got Maxwell House Coffee, and they want you to go to the store and ask for it by the brand name. And the reason for this is that. At this time, you still have a general store, so you go into the store and you'd say five pounds of flour or、um, you know five pounds of sugar.、Uh, and what they wanted people to do was go in and say, "We want gold medal brand flour. We want Jello brand gelatin." And they do such a good job of putting the brand in everybody's mind that the word Jello becomes almost generic. So. This was genius enough, but there was another element to this sales plan. Because Order Woodward's salesmen did not go selling the product door to door, they didn't have to have traveling salesmen's licenses, which cost money. You have to buy it in each town if you want to sell door to door. To save the money, he even gave his salesmen a little booklet. That told them legally what to do when they got into a town if they were confronted with someone telling them, "You need a traveling salesman's license." His salesman could respond, "Well, we're not selling door to door." Order Woodward's traveling salesmen were very successful in getting people to go to the store and ask for Jello, but the name became so well known that asking for Jello was practically synonymous with asking for any gelatin package. So Order Woodward worked hard to protect the brand name through advertising. For example, four-year-old Elizabeth King was introduced as the Jello Girl in 1904. Not long after, Order Woodward died of a stroke in 1906, but his family took over and continued to be successful. 
By 1907, Jello was grossing a million dollars a year. During the 1920s, Jello becomes quite famous, and it's advertised very highly with colorful ads. And they also introduce in 1930 lime Jello, and lime Jello becomes the salad flavor. And so the 1920s and 30s, they have primarily their six main flavors. And of course, I, I should add that the first four flavors of Jello, which is always asked on a trivia question, is raspberry and strawberry and lemon and orange. And they try some other flavors during this period of time. They introduce coffee flavored gelatin. They introduce chocolate flavored gelatin, not pudding, and peach and a few other varieties. During that time, during the 1920s, they came up with new recipe books each year, teaching people how to use Jello and how to make it tasty. They also had famous artists create illustrations for their advertisements. They hired Rose O'Neill. She did over a hundred different advertising pieces for them in the 1920s, which is really the golden age of advertising. They hired Maxfield Parrish. To do two illustrations, which are quite famous for Jello, and also、uh, Norman Rockwell. Norman Rockwell was a relatively young illustrator, and he did two illustrations for Jello. Those are quite collectible today. By the way, in 1925, the Jello Company Inc. was sold to the Postum Cereal Company Inc., which would, after acquisitions and mergers, eventually become the well-known Kraft Foods. After the 1920s came the 1930s and the Great Depression. During that time, Jello's advertising was about how we know it's a hard time, but this little package can give you a wonderful dessert, and it's really not that expensive. This is also when they hired Jack Benny to do a radio show called The Jello Program. J E L L O. The Jello program, starring Jack Benny, with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Kenny Baker, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Oh, Jack, you want to hear something awful? What, Mary? Here it is, New Year's, and I forgot to write a poem about it. Oh, that's a shame. I'll sit right down and dash one off. Okay, hurry it up. I'll fill in a little time for you, Mary. Ladies and gentlemen, while Miss Livingston is struggling with her latest brainchild, let me remind you that one of the best ways to start out the new year is to have Jello for dessert. It is tempting, delicious, easy to make, and comes in six delicious flavors. Hey, Jack, how do you spell knowledge with an N or a K? With a K. Strawberry, raspberry, cherry. With a capital K. Orange. Yes, a capital K. Lemon and lime, for heaven's sake. <laughs> Then going into World War II, the issue there is the sugar shortage and rationing, and they hire Helen Hawkinson. To do a series of cartoons, she was a cartoonist for the Saturday Evening Post, and there's this little lady who is doing her bit for the war, and she's、uh, saving her ration stamps and everything. But she still manages to buy a box of Jello and tells about how far it, you know the box of gelatin will go in making、uh, a really fancy dessert for everybody in the family or in the community. And she reprimands people for buying too much Jello because it's not right. Everybody needs to be able to share. Then into the Cold War, the advertising switched to focusing on rewritten fairy tales and animals that like to eat Jello, and also cartoons. In the fifties, they also switched to advertising to children. By the fifties and sixties, American culture is、uh, looking to children.、Um, they are, 
you know, selling toys to children. They want the kids, you know, to watch TV. Um, and there's, of course, a whole series of ads on television for Jell-O, um, advertising to kids on kids' programs. We're coming full circle now to the beginning of our incredible true story. 1964, the Jell-O manufacturing plant in Leroy was closed. It had been deemed too small, and since it was landlocked, it couldn't be made any bigger. So Jell-O manufacturing was moved to Dover, Delaware, where it remains today in 2016. There were a lot of hard feelings at the time. And some people in Leroy vowed they'd never eat Jell-O again. But today, the town is proud of its Jell-O history and proudly boasts the Jell-O Gallery Museum where people come from all over the world to tell their Jell-O stories. People come through the museum, we ask them to share some of their Jell-O stories. It's, it's kind of funny. We can tell people from the East Coast and West Coast when they you know, come through because they kind of whisper. They don't really want to admit that they like to eat Jell-O, and it's like, okay. But the people from the Midwest, where Jell-O is kind of a staple, um, and particularly those folks from Utah, where the highest consumption of Jell-O is, um, you know, yeah, Jell-O. Um, yeah, my aunt's. We use my aunt's recipe all the time, or you know, we my my great grandmother's Jell-O recipe. We always serve at Christmas, or. Or they'll tell you horrible things that they put in Jello, or great things, or have you ever tried Jello with this or that? They served Jello when um, immigrants were coming through Ellis Island. In fact, if you, I don't know today, but at one time when you could go through the Ellis Island Museum, you could listen to immigrants talk about how they were served Jello when they had to spend a couple of days at Ellis Island, and many of them had never seen anything like it, and some of them even said that they were afraid of it because they'd never seen anything that color. And they'd never seen anything move like that. But then once they'd had it, they, you know, this was really something great. And the kids kind of lamented the fact that when it would come to the table, the adults would eat it first and, and the kids would really have to scramble to have some because the adults wanted to eat it all. They were introducing it as American food. It was known as America's most famous dessert. Okay, let's catch up with Factory over Skype. Hello? Hi. Hey. Hi. It's nice to hear your voice. Yeah, I'm in my sister's place, and I'm not sure about the internet here, but I'm doing the best I can. I'm right next to the router. I don't know what else to do. <laughs> so tell me about your week. Uh, it was great. Uh, which one? This, <laughs> this past week. Uh, this past week in California. Um, it's been great. I've had a wonderful time visiting with family, eating lots of food. I got to be in my happy place covered in <laughs> covered in crab shell and butter as I'm trying to eat all the delicious crab meat before I have to make it to the train so I can get to San Francisco for my plane. That sounds like my ideal meal. Of course, I also got to eat a lot of my favorite staples from California, like In-N-Out Burger, because you can't come to California and not have In-N-Out. Even vegetarians come to California and have grilled cheese, you know? <laughs> like, it's a staple. Um, got to eat some great meals with a lot of friends, lots of barbecues, which is perfect for this time of year in California. Um, it, oh, what's the temperature? Oh, it depends on which city you're in. So I, since I was all over Northern California this past week, um, today at my parents' house, it was 
39, or for the Americans listening, that is 105-ish. So um, that was a nice warm reminder of why I moved north to Canada. <laughs> oh, so warm. I went on a, like, a, we hopped around to these different breweries on the weekend. Oh, fun. Yeah, and, like, it was pouring rain all day. It was, Seriously? Yep, and I was actually really surprised because... Like, when I woke up in the morning, it was pouring rain, like, sheets. And I was like, oh, okay, it's going to rain itself out. And it just lasted, like, all day. It only stopped in the evening. That's so rare for Vancouver, though. Yeah, it turned out to be really fun. Nice. All the breweries and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I can't tell different beers apart. (laughs) But I can be like, oh, this one tastes a little bit better than that one. (laughs) Yeah, neither one of us are very up on the alcohol game. (laughs) No. Okay, so I guess I better let you go and prep for your big journey. Oh, yes. It will be lots of fun to uh, not go to bed tonight and get on on BART nice and early. Well, travel safe. I know you'll be really sleepy, so be careful. Uh, luckily I'm not driving at all so it's all in everybody else's hands but thank you I will travel safely and uh, I'll check in with you when I get back I look forward to hanging out and uh, getting back to eating some good food with you okay bye Fakri bye